Hello from the children of planet Earth. Three, two, one, zero. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hi, I'm Dr. Amanda Bauer. And I'm Dr. Alan Duffy. We're astronomers. And this season, Cosmic Vertigo is taking things to the extreme. Like the quickest lasers flash pulses of light that last mere attoseconds. That feeling you get when you realize there are more attoseconds in the space of a single second than seconds in the entire history of the universe? That's what we call Cosmic Vertigo. Five, four, three, two, one. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. End of death. The range of the universe extends just as dramatically in time and speed in tiny fractions as much as it does in large numbers. In other words, there can be events that last for billions of years. There can be events that last for billionths of years, trillions of years, trillionths of years. We sort of weirdly sit very much in the middle, logarithmically speaking, between the longest and the quickest events. So we kind of get to enjoy them both in a sense. And yeah, that's interesting. We also sit kind of in the middle of the distance, like not too big, not too little. (gasps) Are we the porridge that's just right? (laughs) I think we are. We've just called our species porridge. Excellent. So, Alan, we should probably clear up this confusion between quickest versus fastest. So what's the quickest? So quickest is in terms of time. We're talking about the duration of the event. What's the quickest possible, shortest time for events to occur in the universe? So their duration, how long do they last? Not the motion of the particle, but the actual time it takes for the event to occur. We talk a lot about seconds or years, all these different different units. But this is an important one to define it. And we haven't actually ever defined that, yeah. <laughs> have we? No. Shame on us. The second. Define a second. One sixtieth of a minute. That doesn't help. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a point of these units of seconds, or indeed any units, is how do we compare? How can I know that my second is the same as your second, Amanda? In the olden days, we would have, you know, say, hourglass. You would turn an hourglass over, and as long as there's the same amount of sand in there, it would roughly be the same amount of time would pass, or a ticking pendulum clock. But it's not very convenient to literally pass pendulum clocks to one another to then calibrate off each other and say, oh, yeah, they're ticking together at the same amount of time. The era of modern electronics has given us a very different type of ticking. In 1967, the world also decided we need a more defined unit of time, the standard for a second. And so it was defined very precisely as 9,192,631,770 cycles of a particular electron transition in cesium-133 atoms. So this is not something that you can do at home. You're just going to have to trust the international standards and measurement. But a time measurement is exactly compared to that electron transition. 
So if we talk about the passage of time and cycling of these cesium electrons, that is the way we measure time. But we can also look to the regular motion of other events. There's ticking pendulum clocks, there's pulsing stars. These are vast objects that regularly brighten and dim, quite literally because they're expanding and contracting. As they expand, the same energy is shared over a larger surface, so they, each individual point becomes dimmer, redder, cooler, and then it overextends and it then collapses back in and compresses and becomes hot once more and bright. That regular ticking like action lasts anywhere from 12 hours up to 100 days. But in between, those stars have a very regular pulsing, just like the ticking of a clock. And thanks to Henrietta Leavitt for this work back in the early 1900s, who then realized you could use these as standard candles and figure out their brightness and then their distance from us because they'd be dimmer if they were further away and you knew how bright they were because of this pulsing effect. And she did all that eyeballing it. Oh my God, ridiculous. Yeah, I think it was a really amazing moment in observational astronomy because you can imagine this is, you know, early 1900s. The way that observations are being made is you use these glass plates. Like imagine cutting a foot by foot piece of flat window putting some chemicals on it and sticking it at the end of your telescope to record the stars. And so you compare the brightness of stars when you re-observe the same place in the sky. And she not only noticed that some are getting brighter and fainter, but she also noticed that the brighter they were, the longer that period for them to go between brighter and fainter happened. And so she made this relationship just off of observations on these glass plates. It's pretty incredible. That measurement that she made was then used to determine that not only is the universe big, but it's way bigger than the Milky Way. So it really changed the course of our understanding of the entire universe. In our quest to find quicker events, that's the pulsing of an entire star, we have to go a little bit more extreme to find things that tick or move more quickly. We can go to our old friends, the neutron stars. So normal neutron stars, and I would do air quotes there if I hated myself a little bit more. Those have a period of a second or less. An object with a mass or a few times the mass of our sun spinning around once a second. An extraordinary object. And yet they're not the quickest by any means. You can have far quicker periods or lengths of a day, I guess, if you wanted to call it that, for a neutron star. They essentially feed from a companion. Material is stolen from a companion, pulled onto the surface of that neutron star. And this is equivalent to the ice skater who's spinning and then pulls in their arms and, and speeds up in doing so. As the material falls onto the surface, to conserve angular momentum, essentially, the neutron star speeds up and eventually can get to incredible speeds millisecond pulsars, we call them. They have hundreds of rotations per second. The fastest known is rotating 716 times per second. It's PSR, so pulsar J1748-2446 AD. I've got that tattoo. <laughs> that kind of millisecond pulsar is incredibly quick, very accurate clocks, and impossibly annoying signs. And hopefully here's where we play the worst noise I've ever heard. It's like, 
so unpleasant. Everyone's ears are bleeding, right? <laughs> 716 times per second. That's mm-hmm. an incredible speed for a star to be spinning around at. A period that lasts just 1.4 milliseconds. That's pretty quick. We talk about normal neutron stars or stars that rotate. Like these are the most dense objects in the entire universe. And sometimes they spin really, really, really ridiculously fast. And it turns out that as we start to look at quicker and quicker things, neutron stars are really giving us a lot more information. They are causing a lot more havoc in in our universe than we knew a few decades ago. Mm -hmm. The way that they interact with their neighboring stars, what happens when they come into contact with another neutron star or another black hole, they really put out a lot of energy very quickly into the universe. And we detect it in lots of different ways that we're just kind of learning about recently as our telescopes and instruments become a little bit more sophisticated. Individual neutron star, Super crazy, exciting, quick. Let's slam two neutron stars together. And create one of the coolest names, finally, the Kilanova. Neutron stars merging together, the Kilanova. This collision creates an absolutely awesome outburst of energy. This is known as a short gamma ray burst. The entire event essentially occurs, I guess, within a second. Yeah, but we didn't know that. That was like the cool thing. We knew of this thing called a short gamma ray burst. But we had no idea what it actually was. It sends out this intense flash of gamma rays, this really high energy light particle that only lasts for a second. And yet it contains as much energy as the sun emits in a trillion years. So we've got this mysterious object and we don't know if it came from a neutron star black hole merger or neutron star neutron star or what it was that was happening so quick. So we start the scene at this point of mystery, but with a very well observed phenomenon called the short gamma ray burst. It's called short because there's also a long one and long in this sense is longer than two seconds. So, I mean, that's ancient. And that one had a little bit of a better physical understanding. So just last year, this one of these kilonovas um, were detected in this fabulous new kind of, of physics through gravitational waves. So we've only detected, what, a handful of these things now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, gravitational wave events? Yeah. Oh, half a dozen? Yeah. Yeah, like not many of these. We're just kind of opening up the universe in gravitational waves. But one of these discoveries, we got a burst of gravitational waves, and within seconds, around the world, regular old optical infrared gamma ray telescopes started to look at this general region of the sky, and an electromagnetic pulse was detected. A short gamma ray burst was detected two seconds after the gravitational wave peak. And so this was the first time we were able to distinctly say what causes these gamma ray bursts were this kilonova, this merger of two neutron stars. It's very exciting. And that neutron star merger, and also producing an entire Earth's mass of pure gold in the collision, everyone loves that. Literally the gold in your jewelry, your wedding ring, whatever, has come from two colliding neutron stars billions of years ago formed in that furnace all within 
a second. It's an incredible idea. The gravitational waves, as they rippled out towards us, hit one detector in the US, one side of America, and then just 6.9 milliseconds later hit the second detector because it was that much of a distance away. We know the speed of uh, light and knowing this time, the distance and how long it took the travel time between, we can now measure the speed of gravity and it's the same as speed of light. Now that's actually entirely reasonable and good, but that had to be tested. So 6.9 milliseconds is an incredibly long length of time, actually, in terms of our ability to measure the quickest events. But it was very much quicker than the blink of an eye. And yet with that, you could say, aha, this right-hand side got hit first and then the left. So I know the event is somewhere off in the direction of that right-hand side. And actually, that was enough of a precision to then train our telescopes in the optical and, and normal wavelengths of light and actually then find the counterpart, which was then the kilonova. So very, very cool. Just 6.9 milliseconds. So, I mean, that's how we detect the gravitational waves. But they must have, if you've got these neutron stars orbiting around each other, that moment that they actually combine is when that burst of gravitational waves goes out, traveling at the speed of light. But then it was about 1.7 seconds later that we detected the gamma ray. So it must have just been a slight delay from when the gravitational waves were released to when the light was actually released from this merger event. Yeah, it just takes time for the fireball, essentially, which is the end result of the collision of these two neutron stars to explode and to shine. And it's about just over a second between the actual point where they're beginning to touch. And that's when these gravitational waves are at their strongest. And then the fireball that's triggered just a second or so afterwards. There are other events in the cosmos that are occurring on incredibly short timescales that we just simply do not know. And in fact, it's only relatively recently we've actually looked at the night sky on those short, those quick timescales. Because things take ages, right? I mean, it takes hours or days or years or tens of thousands or millions of years for things to happen. You don't expect them to happen in milliseconds. Quite literally, we've blinked and we've missed it. We've now gone back into our records, in particular in radio, and searched for events lasting milliseconds. And we find that there are explosions in the night sky quicker than a millisecond, releasing as much energy as our sun does in an entire day. There are potentially thousands, tens of thousands of these across the night sky each and every night. And yet we only just relatively recently discovered them because we looked at that short a timescale and we don't know what they are. Yeah. So this particular type of object was first spotted in 2007, a big burst of radio energy. So we call them... Lorimer burst. Fast radio burst. It <laughs> so it's kind of crazy just to think, hey, we got some telescopes, different kinds of telescopes, look at different parts of the sky, and we find these, like, I see this, I've seen about a dozen of them now, but I have no idea what's happening. <laughs> Yeah, fast radio bursts. Good name, by the way. As it goes, astronomers, well done. Rather descriptive, anyway. <laughs> it tells you all you need to know, and indeed it tells you all that we know at this stage, too. They're fast and in radio, and very bursty. Usually they only happen once, one little burst, but there was one recently that had a repeated signal, not of the same intensity, but very fast. And so 
when they watched it again, they were able to trace its origin back to a location in a dwarf galaxy about three billion light years away. So that was narrowing it in a little bit more than what we've had for other fast radio bursts. Adding it all together, like the guesses that we have, of course, theorists are going to throw some out. It has to be related to probably a neutron star or a pulsar, that spinning neutron star, but it definitely has something to do with very strong magnetic fields. Some of the observations that we've made show that the light is polarized, which is something that only happens when it goes through some kind of strong magnetic field. So another piece of the puzzle added into that aspect of this millisecond quick radio burst. If we want to go to quicker timescales, though, as we've discovered in a lot of these streams, it's actually right here on Earth that we can probe them. So we go to biology. On milliseconds, so the same time scale as the fast radio burst occurs, is the time scale on which we get the action potential, so the nerve signal being transferred in, for example, muscle nerve fibers. This is even faster, the action of enzymes that act to speed up chemical reactions. These can work on microseconds, so a millionth of a second. Put it another way, every time you blink your eye, the fastest enzymes in the cells in your eye have basically done 100,000 cycles of work each and every eye blink. To go to quicker timescales, quicker events, we have to leave biology behind, which is lucky because it's by far and away my worst science, and instead go to the realm of chemistry and then ultimately physics. Yeah, chemistry is fun because it's when things start to explode. That's that's kind of the best part and worst part about chemistry, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh. That's a dual-edged sword, that one, yeah. But uh, just what did you mean by that crack about the Earth being gone? Oh, uh, I'm going to blow it up. It obstructs my view of Venus. It does? That's a shame. I wasn't a very good chemistry student. I'm just going to say that up front. But I did not make anything explode with the kind of rapidity that, say, TNT explodes with. <laughs> so... That's good. Everybody can be happy I went into physics and not chemistry. Where's the kaboom? There was supposed to be an earth-shattering kaboom. I'm just going to point out there are bigger explosions in physics than there are in chemistry. But I know, but I'm not creating any stars in my lab. <laughs> so Yet, I think that's a good Amanda. thing. Yet. <laughs> I'm just observing them, using the telescopes to look out there, thankfully not mixing anything together to see how it reacts. Oh, dangerous. Those reactions, those explosive reactions, so taking TNT, they occur quickly. It's a bang and, oh, wow, it's happened. But there's actually a speed. It takes time for the explosion to rip through your Wile E. Coyote-style Acme dynamite stick. TNT has an, what's called an explosive velocity of about 7,000 meters a second. That means that stick of dynamite would rip apart in essentially a microsecond. 
much, much faster than the blink of an eye. That's fast. It's pretty fast. Yeah. And that's where a lot of the explosive force comes from because it all happens very, very quickly. And then you create a massive amount of energy in a small volume and you get a huge pressure. And that pressure wave is actually what ripples out and causes the destructive force. And because humans are, you know, this way inclined, we like to go for more destructive force. So the way you do that is release even more energy, even more quickly to create an even bigger pressure wave and all of the subsequent destructive effects that occurs. One way to do that, fusion bomb. So uh, a fusion bomb is an incredibly quick reaction because it involves compressing hydrogen to really intense pressures and temperatures. And so it only takes tens of nanoseconds for that nuclear reaction to happen when a bomb goes off. Nice thing is, that quick an event, light can't even travel more than a couple of meters. So quite literally, the bomb has occurred, and if it was in one side of a room, then the light hasn't even arrived to tell you that that's occurred. So, I don't know, you blink and it's gone. Or you're gone. Okay, so now we've gone through biological, a couple astronomical time frames. We've gone into chemical. Now let's get into something that has been affecting our day-to-day lives, computing timescales. And this regularly operates on the timescales of nanoseconds. This is a billionth of a second. If you think about what a nanosecond is to one second, it's what one second is to 31.7 years. So this is a tiny, tiny, itty bitty time scale. And yet it's what occurs in our processors and our CPUs all the time. So I may be going to show my age here a little bit, but when I was growing up, I had Ataris and 386s, and I remember the time when we got a 486, Intel 486. That was the most powerful computer I could ever imagine. And it operated at a lightning quick, 100 megahertz. This processor could take 100 million times per second. That's really impressive. We kind of slag off like old tech, but you know, 100 million cycles gives you the potential for a small calculation each and every 10 nanoseconds. We were doing that in the 90s. Now my MacBook has, you know, a processor running at ah, three to four gigahertz. So in other words, we can operate in cycles of fractions of nanoseconds, essentially 250 picoseconds. That's quick. And we do this routinely around the world. Billions of processors, billions upon billions of calculations. We operate on the nanoscales. It's nanoseconds. It's really kind of incredible. Humans are processing some basic facts, you know, comparing a couple numbers every second or so. And even moderately fast modern CPUs can process a few instructions, the same kind of comparing a couple numbers every nanosecond. And as Alan described, it just keeps getting faster and faster and faster. There is like some limit. We know in a nanosecond, for instance, if you look at the distance that light or electricity can travel in one nanosecond, that's about 12 inches. So maybe a foot, whatever that is in centimeters. 
<laughs> so that there is uh, some sort of physical limit for how fast that signal can travel in, in a nanosecond. And as you go to quicker timescales, light really doesn't have time to travel very far at all. But is there a limit to how fast these computations and calculations can go? Is there a physical limit? And it kind of depends how you make your processor, but fundamentally, the fastest you could imagine doing calculation is shuffling of atoms, the time scale, how quick that is, do atoms move, say switching between molecules, acting as a shuffling of computing bits on or off. All of this sort of stuff occurs on femtosecond timescales. This is now naught point and then 15 zeros. This is really fast. Femtoseconds, you would then be at the timescale of a millionth of a nanosecond, which would be a millionth of a 30 centimeters divided by a million. So that's 0.3 microns. So, you know, that's still possible. That's still that's still reasonable. We've made switches that are smaller. We've explored things on nanometer scales. Tens of nanometers is, is currently the limit, I think. So it's entirely feasible to imagine your computers cycling on femtosecond timescales, the actual motion of the atoms in these molecules that we experience every day. Just to get a sense of how quick that is, we're getting to the timescales where it's getting like very difficult to make this relevant. However, bear with me on this analogy. Oh, okay. Okay, we're waiting for it. Let's say the femtosecond motion of the atoms or the calculation was a second in our everyday experience. Then it would run second, 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 all of those calculations in a year and my old 486 would have done one cycle. So a full year's worth of calculations, each and every second, unrelenting, all the while my old 486 processor is just ticking one cycle duh. And it's so slow. <laughs> the femtosecond is so quick. So do you have your old 486? Do you still have it? No, man. I think it was back in the <laughs> 90s. I ditched computer. I am ruthless. I'm like the absolute early adopter. But it's because I love my ever faster computing. And once we get to femtoseconds, well, look, essentially for the calculations that are occurring on femtosecond timescales, normal computing looks glacially slow. You and I, our movements, we are just frozen in time as far as they're concerned. And we can even go beyond that. We can go quicker. We can look at the motion of electrons that make up the chemical reactions at the scale of attoseconds. I don't know how many times I've ever used an attosecond. That's 18 zeros. This is an incredibly short amount of time. And you just think about what a regular second feels like. One, two, three. Who knows if my relative second is, is reasonable, but there are more attoseconds in each one of those seconds than there are seconds in the entire history of the universe. That's what an attosecond is. And incredibly, we actually have a laser at Swinburne that fires pulses of laser light at the attosecond scale. So it's kind of like an old uh, stop motion film, right? 
a flash of light reveals the scene and then the next scene a frame occurs and another flash of light another flash of light and you slowly see the person jerkily move you know across the scene to do this kind of tracking of electrons you have to fire these flashes of light to reveal its presence on the timescale of which it moves and which it occurs in reactions and that is the attosecond so you have to fire pulses of lasers at these attosecond timescales just to trace out the electron's motion. It's incredible. It is absolutely That's cool. awesome. And we can go one beyond that. So let's look at the quickest possible time, the Planck time. This is the time that it takes light to travel across the Planck length, which is the smallest length that we could conceive of, that we could actually distinguish, that we could ever measure particles next to each other at the Planck length. This is so small, a billion, billion, billion of these could fit into the attosecond. Yeah, there are more Planck times in an attosecond than there are attoseconds in the time since the dinosaurs. <laughs> Get your head around that. The attosecond was tiny, was inconceivably small, and yet you can fit more Planck times, these quickest possible times in an attosecond than there are these fractions of a second, these attoseconds, in all of the time since the dinosaurs. Our shortest, quickest, most shocking moments all occur in the blink of an eye. A length of time that to atoms appear as long as the length of the entire universe does to us. At the very quickest possible time, the blink of our eye is a billion, billion, billion times the entire age of the universe is to us. There are very quick events occurring out there, and all of our history and our experiences really pale into insignificance in, in what you can imagine could occur on those short and very much longer timescales. We sit in the middle, and we're very fortunate to do so because we can explore both ends. That's all the Cosmic Vertigo we've got for you this time. I'm Dr. Amanda Bauer. And I'm Dr. Alan Duffy. Our producers this season are... Carl Smith. Sarah Mashman. And I'm Joel Werner. Our science editor is Jonathan Webb. And the sound engineer for this episode and all of Cosmic Vertigo Season 2 is Mark Don. And in the next episode, this happens. I love this one. This is my favorite. It's the OMG particle, the oh my God particle. <laughs> so, is it really? Is that what yeah. this is called? Yeah, it was written on the track. <laughs>